Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. At a time when we're remembering historical events that took place a century ago, Unthinkable Today reflects on one of those ideas or philosophies that was emerging in Europe while Ireland was in revolutionary turmoil. In the early part of the 20th century, the German philosopher Edmund Husserl developed a school of thought known as phenomenology, which caught the modernist wave that was then sweeping across European artistic and cultural scenes. In 1912, Husserl started a new journal, the Yearbook for Philosophy and Phenomenological Research, which aimed to document this new so-called science of experience. And he began lecturing on phenomenology internationally, including in London in 1922. Phenomenology has an enduring appeal today, and some of the ideas behind it have filtered into everyday thinking. But it also has its critics, who argue that its endless examination and re-examination of experiences and tastes lends itself to a subjective and unscientific account of the world. Francis Halsell, who teaches philosophy and art theory at the National College of Art and Design, is today's guest. I started by asking him to explain, what is phenomenology? Phenomenology is a modern philosophical movement. It begins at the beginning of the 20th century, um, and it takes as its starting point phenomena, that is consciousness, and the way in which consciousness experiences the world. Um, it's primarily associated with the founder of phenomenology is Edmund Husserl. Another important philosopher associated with it is Maurice Merleau-Ponty, the French philosopher. Um, it considers itself... Um, when it begins in the beginning of the 20th century as an attempt to start philosophy again. As Husserl calls it, a first philosophy. That's to start philosophy again and go back to first principles. So what Husserl does then is take as his starting point experience. So in straightforward terms, it is a philosophy of experience. So it's before you describe objects or before you reach a conclusion as to what you're seeing, you're almost reflecting on your own experience of sight, touch, movement. Is, is, is that where you're, the starting point of the phenomenologist is? Yes, that, that is the starting point. And that is also one of the sort of contentious points about it and why it's often seen as controversial, because it, it seems to begin with human experience and not the world in itself independent of human experience. For the phenomenologist, it doesn't make sense to talk about the world in itself. You can only talk about the world as an object of experience. And is it primarily a reaction to maybe an objectivist or a scientific or scientistic view of the world that that reduces everything maybe to scientific observation or an objective, factual account of things that's divorced from human experience? Is Is it primarily sort of a response to that? Yes, it is. So... It's a little bit later, but it's in towards the late 1930s. Husserl writes a book which is often seen to be the culmination of his thinking um, called The Crisis in the European Sciences. So he's responding to that moment at the beginning of the 20th century where science um, has developed to a certain point with things like quantum um, physics and so forth. Um, and he says that science actually ha- has a kind of crisis because whilst 
it observes the world and observes um, the empirical world, it can't give an account of why the world is meaningful. What it does is it takes the world, as you said, quite rightly, as an objective fact. And therefore, it seems to treat the world independently of human experience. This, for Husserl, creates this so-called crisis, because it, it means that there is no longer meaning in the world. Science is seen as, a, as an abstraction. It deals with the world objectively. So phenomenology, by returning back to consciousness, is, a, is a, intending to be an ology, a science of consciousness. Um, it's an attempt to give an account of why the world is meaningful um, and how consciousness is not separate from the world. The world is not experienced objectively, but the world is experienced subjectively. As Maurice Merleau-Ponty puts it in one of his later essays called Iron Mind, science manipulates things and gives up living in them. And these guys are interested in um, getting away from the idea of science being an abstraction and getting back to thinking about what it means to be living in the world, to return to sort of experience then as an object of philosophy. And from the Merleau-Ponty's point of view, meaning, does it come from... The, the experience itself. So when you when you describe the experience, is is that the meaning in its own right, or is it is it is that a, um, a gateway then to to understanding what's meaningful about uh, um, the world around us? I guess it's a gateway. I mean, for Merleau-Ponty in particular, consciousness and the way meaning is constructed is always a sort of a dialogical process. We're always sort of there's a reciprocal relationship between the world and thought. Neither one comes first. There can be no thought without it being thought about a world. But likewise, in a strange philosophical move, I guess, if you haven't been thinking about philosophy, there can be no world without thought. Now, that doesn't mean that things cease to exist if people aren't thinking them, but what it does mean is that we can't think of the world independently of ourselves thinking it. And how does this relate to Irish? Uh, obviously, Merleau Ponty had a particular interest in, in writing about Irish. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and it must be said, maybe he doesn't represent all phenomenologists in this, in this regard. Mm-hmm. Um, it relates to art, I guess, in two ways, in terms of modernist art or art of the 20th century. The first way, and this is not what really what Merleau-Ponty is talking about, if we are interested in a philosophy of experience, then what we can look at is art as not being about objects, but about being about experiences. So actually what we can think of, rather than the question of what is art, thinking about a particular set of objects, we, may, we can ask the question, when is art? Like, when is art being experienced? Now, the key case for this is the ready-made, Duchamp's ready-made, where a urinal is put forward as a work of art, this notorious example. If that urinal is not being viewed as art, then it is not art. So it, it, it's about the experience of art rather than the object of art. And that is the condition of 20th century art and 21st century art, right? That anything can be art. And for that reason, we don't have our objects, we have art experiences. And this is the whole point of Tino Sadal's work, for example, where he stages conversations that are experiences um, and so forth. So, but the second point then, so firstly, it's a good way of thinking about the condition of modern and contemporary art as being experiential rather than being related to objects or materials, specific objects and materials, I should say, sorry. Secondly, for Merleau-Ponty, art itself is a way of philosophizing. Um, he calls it non-philosophy, but he doesn't mean that it's anti-philosophy, but that certain aesthetic experiences and certain artistic practices are themselves ways of thinking about meaning 
and way of thinking about our place in the world. So in some respects, a painter like Cezanne is doing a type of philosophy as much as he is doing a type of philosophy because art is a way of reflecting upon experience and a way of reflecting upon our place in the world. Mm. Why did he concentrate on Cezanne? He, he was maybe in his time very experimental and, and I think wasn't recognised in his own time. It kind mm-hmm. of came later that people acknowledged his, his type of genius. Mm-hmm. Why is he the phenomenologist's go-to painter? Um, I guess, I mean, in some respects, it's because Merleau-Ponty doesn't know a huge amount about art. He's writing at a time when there is the emergence of modernism in art. So Picasso paints his La Demoiselle d'Avignon in 1907. This is when Cubism emerges. Merleau-Ponty doesn't really deal with this. I mean, he does a little bit, but not, not really. But, so, why Cezanne? Well, he sees in Cezanne a new and modern way of painting, right? So there's something new and, and, and challenging about it. So there's that. Um, there's an avant-garde way of thinking. Or, to put it another way, we've got a sort of a modern way of looking at the world through painting, responding to perhaps the conditions of modernity. Um, to phrase it another way, what Cezanne does for Merleau-Ponty is treats the world itself as an abstraction and treats the world itself as something odd and weird, and that is because Cezanne has to paint the world according to paint. Cezanne is not trying to make a representation right, or an accurate illusionistic representation. In other words, he's trying to deal with a landscape according to the mediums of paint. Um, Merleau-Ponty sees something in that, that Cézanne treats experience itself, the experience of a landscape, as strange and unusual and worthy of attention. So that therefore Cézanne himself, he's being a philosopher whilst he's treating experience because he's he's trying to analyse the contents of his experience. And where does the phenomenology or the, the, this theory of phenomenology around artwork fit into the broader um, artwork theory? Uh, because mm-hmm. there's lots of different um, ideas around what makes art, what mm-hmm. is art, and I don't know whether it divides evenly or there's still a division between maybe the experiencers and the observers, mm-hmm. people who feel art is primarily beautiful things that you stand back and, and look at in awe and there are those then that, that feel it's something you get inside and mm-hmm. you have to almost touch and feel and, and emotionally respond to the and move with the with the artwork yeah well one thing we haven't mentioned is so this comes up very particularly in Merleau-Ponty in his famous book The Phenomenology of Perception one of his insights in that is that consciousness is not abstracted from the world, but consciousness is embodied. This is one of his big insights, right? That consciousness sits within a body and is inseparable from the body. Consciousness is embodied. Um, It's not just merely conceptual or logical, but actually it sort of sits within this thing that we have as a body. So if consciousness is embodied, we can think then about how certain aesthetic practices, certain artworks become a way of thinking about the relationship between the body and consciousness and so forth. Um, many artworks that we'll see from the 20th century onwards involve things like performance or sculptures or things that move or situations where we're uncertain where the art is or art isn't. In all of these instances, we're given an opportunity to reflect upon our place in that situation. So that is why art becomes a way of reflecting upon experience in the same way that phenomenology is a way of reflecting upon experience, hence there being an equivalence between the two. Just going back to one final question mm. on phenomenology itself. Sure. Maybe it's a, it's a criticism that has been made against it that 
it almost reduces knowledge to a very subjective sure. individual experience and it's hard to see how you can build knowledge from phenomenology phenomenological observations or experiences yeah sure um, is, is that a, is that a, a problem with it or how does one get around that that's often seen as being a problem of phenomenology so from realist positions for example or maybe positions that take a particular view of what science is there is a problem with phenomenology that it seems to be returning just back to subjective experience um and that therefore it's solipsistic, it's self-contained, and it's all about the individual. I think this is a misunderstanding of what phenomenology is. In part, this is a criticism of some of its influence. Um, when phenomenology begins with Husserl, who's a mathematician originally, it is a rigorous science of consciousness. Both him and Merleau-Ponty are not anti-science. As I say, he's a mathematician. Merleau-Ponty begins as a psychologist, a child psychologist, and so on. So they're not anti-science, but they're trying to do a science of consciousness. So that's the, 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 the kind of the first bit, part t- to that. Um, secondly, if consciousness is embodied, right, if experience is embodied and, and phenomenology looks at that, what that means is that consciousness is part of the world by being part of a body. Body is not separate from the world. If I stand up now, I'm going to bang into the table. Um, my body is part of the world. What this would suggest then is, if we take the phenomenological account seriously looking at the embodiment of consciousness is that consciousness doesn't stop at the skin it's not bounded by the skin but actually bleeds out into the world through the body and it does so in in a variety of different ways and this is why it's not solipsistic the first of these is through language habit custom culture and history if consciousness is part of a body and body is part of a world consciousness is not possible without other people it's not possible without the world and the world that involves other people. It's inherently intersubjective is what I'm saying. I can't think without language. So it's not solipsistic at all. Um, And secondly, not only is it about language, but it's also about how consciousness interacts with the stuff of the world, with the objects and the things that populate the world, and how those objects and things also frame and shape consciousness. There's an experiment that a psychologist, Bruce Alexander, did in the 70s. Now, he's not a phenomenologist, but it's, it's a sort of a related point, I think, um, where he looked at rats in solitary confinement. Right? And if you put a rat in solitary confinement and give it access to addictive drugs, a rat will take those drugs. He built a different environment for rats. Rat Park, he called it, where they could run around and they could do whatever rats love to do. And if you put rats in those types of environment they don't choose to take drugs in any way the same amount that the rats in solitary confinement. How does this relate? Why is this a phenomenological insight? Well, what that would suggest is that it's not individual choices that are related to addiction. Right? It's not individuals that are addicted, for example. It's not individuals that behave, but it's entire situations. The rats in solitary confinement were in an addictive situation. The rats in their happy environment were in a non-addictive situation. The consciousness of the rat is inextricable from its environment. That is at heart a sort of a phenomenological sort of observation, I think. That consciousness is not separate from its environment, but it's sort of embedded in it through the body. One implication of that might mm. be there's a lot of discussion around consciousness among artificial intelligence kind exactly, of yeah. consciousness. Mm-hmm. The implication is they can't have the same consciousness. If they yeah. don't have consciousness, it's not going to be like ours. Exactly, yeah. And that there is quite a lot of 
discussion going on at those cutting edges of so-called neurophenomenology and so forth about um, whether phenomenology can inform uh, artificial intelligence, artificial life and so on because it would suggest that this dualistic model of thought over here on the one hand and the world over here on the other um, doesn't work. We need to think about thought as intertwined. Merleau-Ponty opens the phenomenology of perception taking dead aim at the two dominant traditions within Western philosophy, the so-called Cartesian tradition, beginning with Descartes. Um, Beginning in the 17th century, Descartes begins philosophy by saying, I think, therefore I am. So ideas of what's truly real. Ideas are the foundation of philosophy. With a cogito argus on, I think, therefore I am, leading for this into logical truths and so on. So you have idealist philosophy on the one hand, and then you have empirical, empiricist philosophy on the other, Locke and Hume and so forth, that say the world itself, the object of scientific inquiry, is where knowledge resides. And it's the job of the scientist to find more and more out about the world. What Merleau-Ponty says is that both of those traditions, which are the foundation of Western philosophy, both of them enact a split between the human subject, which is separate from the world. Phenomenology is in part trying to put those two back together, which is difficult, if not impossible, but it's an interesting prospect. One last question, yeah, Andrew sure. Francis, because um, you were educated in the English uh, education system, had a job opportunity to study uh, philosophy. <laughs> Um, at A levels, mm. um, do you notice within the Irish context uh, maybe a need for something or more philosophy in schools? And maybe with reference to um, students who come come up into third level, there's always a, a, an accusation that uh, critical thinking isn't one of the skills that's mm. highly valued through the leaving search. Yeah, absolutely. I think for two reasons. On the one hand, children are natural philosophers. They're still astonished by the world and they keep asking questions of it. That is an inherently philosophical worldview, right? That one version of philosophy is that it's an attempt to remain astonished at the world and to ask questions of it. Children do that naturally, right? So I think in some respects to foster that would be an important and interesting thing to do. And then secondly, as you rightly pointed out, there is a certain formal training that comes with philosophy that allows you to think in certain ways, allows you to... um, make arguments as a certain kind of form of critical thinking which would be of use to anyone so I think that that's also something that should be promoted yeah absolutely imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.